It's a funny question, right? Will life be different when you die? But in this case, you're dead, and death means life is over. So asking if going from existing to non-existing for something changes the state of the thing? Well, either the question is nonsensical, or, like all kinds of traditions throughout history assert, what looks like death from the physical side is actually more like a change of location. So what's this new location like? Well, let's hear about it from somebody who's been there. In the spiritual world, there are land masses and bodies of water, mountains and hills, plains and valleys, springs and streams, gardens and woods. Just as in the physical world, there are also mansions and homes there, and cities and villages. There are also written documents and books, jobs and businesses, precious stones, gold and silver. To put it briefly, every single thing that exists on Earth exists in an infinitely more perfect form in the heavens. The only difference between the two is that everything in the spiritual world is spiritual because it has a spiritual origin. It all comes from the sun of that world, which is pure love. Hey, welcome to Swedenborg and Life. What you just saw was a description of the afterlife from Swedenborg, who reported having direct, lucid access to the spiritual world. Like he could go there, do some stuff, come back for three decades uninterrupted. And what he reports is that he saw this life after death that is full of stuff. Just like you have stuff here, vivid sights, sounds, smells, tangible objects. There's a lot there that would be very familiar to you and I who grew up in this world, which is also filled with stuff. But there's all of these key differences. He's talking about two different suns, right? That there's, we have a sun here. There's a sun that planet Earth revolves around, but there's also a sun in the spiritual world. And remember, this is what he said about the interesting character of that sun. He says, the only difference between the two, meaning those two suns, is that everything in the spiritual world is spiritual because it has a spiritual origin. It all comes from the sun of that world, which is pure love. Okay, that's the, that's the only difference is that instead of being made out of nuclear fission or fusion or whatever the sun is, it's made out of love. Because in the spiritual world, love is a force. Love is a thing as tangible and as impactful and as omnipresent as gravity is here. So love actually is what there directs and creates things. And you see that here. This part of us that is spiritual, the part that's emotional and cognitive, how big a deal is love in there? It directs everything we do. So in the spiritual world, you see that, but written externally as well as internally. So everything there is actually responsive to thoughts and feelings. There could, there could be a hint of a responsive nature of the physical world to, to thoughts and feelings. There's that, you know, the double slit experiment, and there's some instances where we can get thought to interact with machinery, thought, stuff inside our minds and hearts affects how we experience things. But overall, pretty much, this desk doesn't care what I think or, or what I'm feeling. I can't really affect it there. That's the way that physical matter is. 
But in the afterlife, there's matter as well, but it's not physical, it's a spiritual matter. And spiritual matter, in, in essence, in a way, really does care what you think. So in the context of all that, will life be different when I die? Let's look at this and break it down by major life areas. So we'll go take a look at surroundings and clothing in the life after death, time and space, communication, religion even, relationships and jobs and activities. And let's just, for good measure, start right in the beginning. Let's look at surroundings and clothing in the afterlife. On Earth, there are physical things all around us. We perceive these things based upon our state of mind. For example, take this jacket. Uh, if I have a particular affection for this style of jacket, I'm gonna love it, I'm gonna wear it. But if you don't really like this kind of jacket, it's gonna be something that you'll probably never try on. Take a look at the weather around us, it's chilly. If I'm having a particularly good day, this might appear refreshing, but if I'm having a particularly bad day, if I'm struggling today, the chilly air might be mm, dreary. However, this tree is a different story. It remains constant no matter what the state of mind I have as I approach it. It follows the predetermined patterns of nature. This, however, is different though in the afterlife. Swedenborg writes that those matters of love and wisdom that we all call thoughts, perceptions, and feelings are substances and forms. We find in the spiritual world all the things that occur in the three kingdoms of our physical world, and they reflect the feelings and thoughts of the people who are there. Both their feelings and their thoughts are visible around them, looking much like the things we see in the created universe, though we see them in less perfect representations. So in the afterlife, your thoughts, feelings, and intentions manipulate the environment around you. And as such, you can learn about yourself through this observation of that environment. Some levels look similar to those on Earth, but as you progress in heaven and evolve, those environments around you become more and more remarkable. As we know, the stuff in our hearts and in our minds changes as we grow and change. And so the reflection that you see externally in the spiritual world is not static either. Swedenborg wrote in Heaven and Hell, as the states of the inner levels of angels' love and wisdom change, so too do the states of the various things that surround them and are visible to their eyes. Where the things that surround angels are given their appearance according to the things that are within them. How is that not cool? Because two things. One is the idea of representing a feeling or a thought as an object, that, like a cactus could be an image of the kinds of things we think and feel. That's awesome. But then also the idea that you could be observing a landscape or a structure and, and from it, like, sort of like we try to do with dreams, you can interpret what's going on with you. That's awesome. And this is something that is done communally and individually. It's communally because there's a lot of people there, just like there are here, and they're living together. And the collective mindset of a group can affect the surroundings on a large scale, but also on an individual scale. Your house, your yard are potentially this, or no, I shouldn't say potentially, they are without exception this reflection of what's going on in you. And if you want to dig into that more, we have a whole episode about it. It's called How to Get a Home in Heaven. And clothing. We talked in the last episode about how your body, your spiritual body, is a reflection of what you care about and your motives and your thought processes. But your clothing actually is as well. So here on Earth, 
what is, what is clothing a reflection of? It could be a reflection of how much money you have. It could be a reflection of which trends you want to follow. It could be a reflection of that you don't care. <laughs> you know, I just put something on. But there, he describes clothing actually spontaneously generating. Like if you really came to a breakthrough or change states of mind, you could look down and see you're in different clothing because the clothing is a reflection reflection of what's going on in there or clothes could appear in your home now that you've reached some kind of new plateau of angel learning and so now you get your outfit to go with it it's this much more dynamic responsive and and matching to who you really are do you ever get into clothes or you you feel like i just can't find something that really matches who i am there's not going to be a problem there and if you want to dig more into that one check out our episode the clothes in heaven yeah we made a whole show about the clothes in heaven so that, if I had to sum up everything to do with surroundings and clothing, which is part of the surroundings, but just the closest part to you, I would say that the surroundings and clothing will reflect your state of mind. That this is something that's at, at harmony with who you are inside. This doesn't sound so bad, right? Okay. We've got that, which, so there's similarity and difference there because the similarity is there still are clothes. There still is plants and animals. There still are plants and animals. There still is houses, our houses. It's hard with the singular pronouns. Uh, but the difference is why they come into existence and why they stay in existence. So that wraps up surroundings and clothing, but we got more stuff to cover. Next is issues of time and space. And let's think about time. That seems like a pretty heavy subject, so can we lighten it up a little bit and see if cooking can't teach us anything about the spiritual passage of time? Our lives are regulated by the clock and by physical distances. We have to get places and be there at certain times. And we might not be ready for what's coming up or an event can't get here soon enough. And in terms of space, we need to have the ability and the means to get to where we need to go. And this is all regardless of what our wants and needs are, we have to adapt to it. And so time and space can feel like a burden, but do they do some good too? Time and space really work differently in this world and the next, but both are important. The physical world has time and space. The spiritual world, on the other hand, lacks actual time and space, although it does have apparent time and space. Time and space were introduced into both worlds for the sake of distinguishing one thing from another, large from small, many from few, one quantity from another, and one quality from another. Time and space allow our bodily senses to discern the objects they are sensing, and they allow our mental senses to discern the objects they are sensing, to be affected, to think, and to choose. In our episode, How to Live in Eternity Now, we talk about how we can experience the passage of time very differently depending on our own state of mind. But still, we have to coordinate our interactions with others according to the fixed passage of physical world time. But in the afterlife, time works very differently. In the spiritual world, there are no physical units of space or corresponding units of time, yet there appear to be Apparent space and time follow the different states of mind that spirits and angels go through there. The units of spiritual time and space match the desires of their will and the resulting thoughts in their intellect. Apparent space and time, then, are real. They are predictably determined by one's state of mind. Imagine a morning where you have as much time as you need, or you can spend as much time on your activities for as long as your heart is in it, feeling energized. That's time in the afterlife. This customized apparent passage of time is shared with everyone. Each person experiences it. 
And so no one's time is cut short and no one's forced to do some activity longer than they have the interest in it. The timing will feel just right and everything happens at just the right time. Nothing's fixed by the clock. And I want some of that. I would like a little bit of spiritual time. In the example that she gave, the morning is you're trying to eat and play with your kid and uh, get out the door and, and nothing happens. So would be nice to be able to have uh, that sort of accordion there. And distance actually works in a very similar way. We'll talk a little more about distance between things later in the show. But for now, we'll just say that spiritual distance is real, but it's just not fixed in the same way that physical distance is. Things very much, though, take up space. And they have to take up space because only in having units that take up some kind of space can we actually have experiences and relationships between two things. Also, just to be able to do things and maneuver through a space, you have to have it. Did you guys ever read, maybe you did that book called My Stroke of Insight by Jill Bolte-Taylor. So she's a scientist and she was having a stroke and she, she knew that she was having a stroke. At some point she got that and it was this wonderful, her left brain sort of shorted out. So she had this wonderful feeling of everything is one and I'm really happy. But for the life of her, she couldn't dial a phone to call and ask for help. She absolutely lost her ability to differentiate her from the world around her and so to accomplish tasks that she needed to do to save her life. So to be able to operate, we have to have a sense of our individual selves as someone who can interact with other things and other people and enjoy it. And really, if we talk about in the afterlife, in heaven, there's all this love. How do you express love unless we've got some kind of, here's where I am and here's where you are and here's where we meet. Swedenborg wrote this about spiritual substance in the afterlife. Souls after death are substantial people, people with substance, who live together like people in the physical world, only with units of space and time that are determined by their states of mind. That's a great way to say it. It's space and it's time, but rather than them impinging on our consciousness, our consciousness determines them. If the spiritual universe, destination of souls and home of angels and spirits, lacked its own space and time, then it could be passed through the eye of a needle or compressed onto the tip of a single hair. So basically it wouldn't be anything. You could just mush it up and do anything you wanted to it. This would be possible if there were no substantial extension there. Since there is substantial extension there, however, angels live among each other with clear and distinct boundaries. In fact, with even clearer boundaries than people here on earth do where there is material extension. Just wild to think it's more real there. And I think in that quote too, we find the similarity and the difference that there is spiritual space and time, but it's different than the way physical space and time work. You think of the room that we're in, as we said before, in the spiritual world, my state of mind would dictate the, how the room is and the space that's inside it. Here in the physical world, what's your budget? That's how big of a room I can build you. But there it's all responsive to what's living inside of us. Things are real in the spiritual world, but they're more living or less static. And why? Why are they more alive like that? Because to go from the physical up to the spiritual is moving one step closer to God and God is life. God is the essence of aliveness. So things all things are more or less limited according to their closeness to God. God is infinite, or without limits, as creator, shaper, and maker of the universe. He gave everything a limit 
or a boundary. He did so by means of the sun that surrounds him. That sun consists of the divine essence that goes out as a sphere around him. In that sun and from it, the first limitedness occurs. Things are increasingly limited the closer they are to the lowest level of nature in the world. So yeah, no offense, but we're on the most limited level of nature here. But in comparison to the infinite divine, it's not that bad. We're not that far off. But you, you can feel distance as a limitation here. I, there's somebody that I want to visit. They live 3,000 miles away, so I can only visit them like once every four years. But as we move up into the spiritual level, it's what, what creates distance or closeness is love. So if there's somebody you care about, there's not going to be something arbitrary in between you. Actually, love dictates how far apart the distances are. Swedenborg even describes paths that people walk on getting longer or shorter based on how eager they are to get to their destination. So with time and space, I would all boil it down to say time and space will expand and contract according to our spiritual state. So that's time and space. Let's move on now to our next area of afterlife similarity and difference, communication. And actually, some of the work that we do here at Off the Left Eye and the Swedenborg Foundation can give us a real appreciation of just how much spiritual communication could be an upgrade. My work here at the Swedenborg Foundation is to take what Swedenborg wrote in Latin over 250 years ago and help translate it into modern English. So we're making a leap not only between two languages, but across a big time gap. Spoken language changes over time and sometimes drastically so. So it's a real challenge to decide how to take the ideas that Swedenborg was trying to convey and turn them into words that are understandable, clear, and accurate for today's readers. Here on Earth, we talk about language barriers, or we say that something's lost in translation. There could be misunderstandings when we're trying to communicate in writing or in speech. The words we have to choose from sometimes fail to convey everything we're meaning to convey, everything about our intention. So we need to work to clarify what we mean in our communications. And in our translation work, we have to keep, keep up to date with the meanings we choose. One big and wonderful difference when we get to the other world will be the removal of this language barrier with no more misunderstandings and miscommunication. Here's a quote from Heaven and Hell. All people in heaven have the same language. They all understand each other, no matter what community they come from, whether nearby or remote. This language is not learned, but is innate. It flows from their very affection and thought. The sound of the language corresponds to their affection and the articulations of the sound the words, that is, correspond to the mental constructs that arise from their affections. Since their language corresponds to these inner things, it too is spiritual, for it is audible affection and vocal thinking. 
This doesn't mean that all language in the afterlife takes exactly the same form, but it means that language is flowing from the inside out so everyone can understand each other, even if the form is different. Swedenborg describes some of the different kinds of communication as a language of facial expressions, a language of sounds, a language of visual imagery and symbolic representations, a language of bodily movements and information visible in the hands, a language of telepathically shared thoughts and feelings, a language of written letters or numbers. So life after death will involve us opening up to a whole new depth of communication, which sounds like a very exciting change to me and quite a relief. If you want to learn even more about how spirits talk, check out our episode, How Spirits Talk. So you could sum up spiritual communication by saying all language there will clearly communicate people's true feelings, meaning, and intention. It seems like what Kara is talking about is actually like a step beyond language. Here I have an idea or a meaning or something I know and want to get to you, and I use language as an intermediary tool and you take it and hopefully get the same kind of internal experience from it than I am. But there it's just, it's meaning to meaning, and they're directly interfacing. And I think we could get a lot done with that stuff. So I, I like Cara, am excited about that. Since we're tackling everything, why don't we just go with a little uh, light fare like religion? Does religion, a lot of people think of religion as a description of the afterlife or the key to the afterlife, but what role does it actually play there? Some people would think heaven would be being away from religion. So what, what, how does it change from here to there? Is there even religion in the afterlife? Let's let Dr. Jonathan Rose illuminate us a bit on this. So another point is, does our religion in this life matter in the afterlife? Does it, that just cross over or is it different? And is living a religious life in this world a prerequisite for going to heaven. A lot of religions will tell you it is, and you really got to do their religion because it's the only right one. Uh, Swedenborg points to this interesting passage, rather obscure passage, in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament that talks about this place called Dedan, D-E-D-A-N. Dayton is a Hebrew word that means low, and it was an area near Edom that was a low-lying area. And always to Swedenborg, that's sort of like, okay, we're talking about our external lives here, or people who don't have much going on spiritually within themselves. Okay, and so here's that biblical quote. Their wisdom, these people from Dayton, has become rank. Run away, it says. Dayton's inhabitants turned their backs they took themselves down into the depths to live. So they already lived in a rather low area, but here they are going even farther down. And in Secrets of Heaven 1172, Swedenborg explains what this particular passage means. We're fortunate, he doesn't explain every single thing in the Bible, and we're fortunate that he has an explanation of this one. He says, Dayton stands for ritual that holds within it no inward worship of the Lord, that is no heartfelt veneration of him, like just going through the motions or something. This being the proper meaning of Dayton, which is why I think it's that low-lying area. The passage describes people whose ritual is like this as turning their backs and taking themselves down into the depths 
to live. They already lived in a low area, but now they're going really deep because it was just going through the motions. It was empty ritual. They didn't really have any veneration of the Lord in their hearts. So Swedenborg says in a number of different ways that our outward practice or the particular flavor of religion we had in this world actually by itself doesn't mean much. He has a definition of religion that is actually pretty interesting compared to what a lot of people felt religion was. A lot of people will tell you, religion is about your beliefs, it's about you know knowing the right things or reading the right books and, and all that. Here's what he says right at the beginning of his book about life. Religion is all about how we live and the religious way to live is to do good. So that means that earthy religion is can be helpful, but it's only helpful if we're using it to learn how to benefit our neighbor, how to be loving toward our neighbor, how to have compassion and understanding for our neighbor, and thereby how to connect with God, because those are all the same values that, that God has. Swedenborg had the bizarre experience of seeing many respected religious leaders from his time in the physical world, and they're getting love and adoration from everybody, such a powerful preacher and everything, and then they go to the other world and he sees them on the other side. And it turned out in a lot of cases, too many cases, that they were cold-hearted hypocrites. They were people who were in it for themselves or the money who kind of despised people and didn't really care about them. Uh, and that was all a facade. And he also conversely saw many people from all kinds of different religions all over the world, even though he'd been taught growing up that Christianity was the only way to get to heaven. Oh no, he saw people from all kinds of different religions and even people who had no particular religion or they grew up where they that wasn't a thing, but if they had love and compassion, if they treated other people well, they were fine and they found it quite easy to connect uh, with God, to be led to heaven, because they had the thing that you really need. And Swedenborg says, this is why Jesus said that shocking thing in the New Testament, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not a matter of what you say but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And doing the will, so it's about the doing, not just the saying, and the Father in heaven, in Swedenborg's correspondences, always has to do with love. So it's actions that come from the type of love that exists in heaven, and the way that God, who is love, is present there. So on earth, our words and actions can get us praise, or we can be criticized or rejected. People may think, oh, th that person's really spiritual, or people may think that person's really not spiritual at all. They're very materialistic and worldly or whatever. But that's just the opinions in this world. In the afterlife, Swedenborg says, it's not gonna matter what your external religious affiliation was, what your ritual practice was. It's not gonna matter whether a ton of people approved of you or saw you as a great spiritual person. The thing that matters, maybe the only thing that matters, is what kind of life we led 
Did we treat others well? What were our true intentions toward the neighbors that here we are walking through this world with? So God in heaven can work with good intentions no matter what background we come from, no matter what religious persuasion we are, no matter what flavor, no matter where we came from, whether we had no religion growing up or whatever. That's what God in heaven are primarily looking for. It seems like that's how it would have to be if you actually have divine love and wisdom looking into some kind of connecting mechanism like religion. It would have to be what Dr. Rose just described. And it's so foundational to Swedenborg's cosmology that it's actually, he describes it really succinctly in Divine Providence 101. Okay, well, I know that the, the college enumeration system, of course, it wasn't around then, but it's not lost on us that it ended up there. He says there, in the spiritual world, where we all arrive after death, no one asks what our faith has been or what our beliefs have been, only what our life has been, whether we are one kind of person or another. And actually, he explains further that it's not even who have you been, it's who are you now. What do you have in your heart? What do you intend from this point forward? Actually, you could say that the state religion of heaven is goodwill. I know state religion is not that fashionable, but that is what makes heaven because that's what actually a life of goodwill is the only thing that can actually connect you to the Lord. Ritual, texts, nothing else can if it doesn't have that goodwill inside of it. And that's actually, according to Swedenborg and according to common sense, what Jesus Christ was trying to say in this very famous parable from Matthew, where he says, Maybe you've heard it before. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why are they blessed? Why are they inheriting this? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? I mean, I, what, did, I, did I do that? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer to them, truly I tell you, just as you did this to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And it may seem, like in that parable, Jesus is just listing enough examples, hungry, stranger, tired, that you get that it means all of life. But Swedenborg says those actually each correspond to a whole category of charity that those all together in their inner meaning do paint a picture of everything kind we can do for everyone in all these different states of need. So it's a total thing. And so to practice that love, I mean, that religion of goodwill that expresses those things, that could include an infinite variety of forms and practices or rituals. So you can be practicing that religion at heart in addition or in conjunction with whatever your religious practices are out on earth. So that, my friends, I don't feel like I say that enough on this show, my friends, is religion in the spiritual world. I I would summarize it to say genuine religion spiritually is goodwill in action. So we've explored religion in the afterlife. Now let's explore sort of what it's all for, because if if religion is doing goodwill, we do goodwill in the context of there being other people and we're in some kind of relationship with them. So what are relationships like in the spiritual world? 
Relationships are a huge part of life. Relationships are core to our upbringing and development. They're core to our work life, our recreational life. Most every part of life involves relationships in some way. So on Earth, we find ourselves sometimes with people we do want to be with and sometimes people we don't want to be with. We might have superficial connections and deep connections and short-term relationships and long-term relationships. On Earth, the desires of our heart may or may not be fulfilled. For instance, we might find our soulmate or we might not. Uh, we might be able to live near friends and family or we might have to live far away from people we care about. We might get to work with people we're comfortable with and resonate with, or we might find ourselves in a situation where we have to work with people we're not comfortable with. We might be in situations we feel like we really fit in and other situations we really feel like we don't fit in. On Earth, so much depends on outer circumstances that are limited by time and space, but things are going to be very different in regards to relationships in the afterlife. In the afterlife, relationships won't be frustrated or frustrating. As Cara was talking about, communication is gonna be so much easier and it will be so much easier to understand each other. And we'll never have to be separated from people that we care about. This is what Swedenborg writes in Heaven and Hell. In the other life, whenever we think about someone, we call up that individual's face in our thought, along with many details about her or his life. And when we do this, the other is called to us. That means actually comes to us, actually is with us. Things like this happen in the spiritual world because thoughts are shared there and because space is not what it is in the natural world. We'll be with who we're thinking about and we'll be with who we want to be with. Distance isn't a barrier because in the afterlife, thought takes away distance. Travel is according to your state of mind and heart. You can be with somebody through thought and you can stay with somebody through love. We talk more about that in our show, How to Travel in the Afterlife. So in the afterlife, there won't be any loneliness. You don't have to be lonely. You can be with a community of kindred spirits because you're gonna be drawn to them and they'll be drawn to you through your common interests and affections. There's gonna be no loneliness in the afterlife. You'll never have to be lonely. You're going to be drawn to a community of kindred spirits because they're gonna be drawn to you and you'll be drawn to them. And you'll also be drawn to your soulmate. There won't be loneliness in that regard either because you and your soulmate will find each other and be free to share a meaningful life together. So again, similarities and differences. The similarities to this world because you have relationships there and the kind of relationships that we have here. But the difference is that what those relationships are driven by is relationships of hearts and minds. And that difference is a lot like the difference uh, with space and time that we went over already with clothing and surroundings that everything spiritual is more about what really is and really is on a psychological, emotional level rather than on an arbitrary uh, outer level because here, relationships can be dictated by biology, which are sometimes good, sometimes not good, or circumstances, you know, where we are. But there, it's, it's love. It's love and similarity of love and, and po possibility for conjunction. So according to what we care about, our spirits and, and, and actually, and this gets a little wild, our spiritual bodies will either stay present with someone or actually cease to be visible. To the person. This is from heaven and hell. To the extent that we act and talk in keeping with someone else's love, that individual looks whole. 
with a face that is whole, cheerful, and lively. This is describing in the spiritual world. To the extent that we act and talk against someone else's dominant love, though, that individual's face begins to change, to dim, and to be hard to see. Eventually, it disappears as though it were not even there. So your face disappears if somebody is really boring you to tears or really attacking a central principle of what you hold dear. I've often been amazed at this because this kind of thing cannot happen in the world. However, although I would say that the blank stares you get are, are pretty close. However, I have been told that the same thing happens to the spirit within us and that when we turn our attention away from someone, that individual is no longer in our sight. Okay, that little throwaway joke I made is right on. When you get those blank stares, when you can tell you're communicating with someone or trying to explain, this is it. If you're trying to explain a vision to somebody and why something matters and you just can tell this is not clicking with them, they might as well be across, somewhere across the world. They've checked out. We even talk about that. They're here with you, but you know they've checked out. They're gone somewhere. Well, that's because our spirits literally do that. They literally disappear from each other when we're not compatible, even though the bodies are still there, taking up space in the same room. So for relationships, and I'm putting this all in in negative terms, but the positive ones are the love that we have for each other brings us even closer and that the spirits themselves can find each other because that's that's what true love does. So with relationships, in the spiritual world, we'll be with whomever we truly want to be. That's how the spiritual side of it works. So finally, what are we going to be doing after we die? We've got all this stuff that makes it so you can live. We've got space and time and surroundings and appearance and relationships. What are we filling that time with? What are the similarities and differences between the jobs and activities here and in the afterlife, and again, our own organization here is gonna provide a helpful prop for us to explore that. Here we are at the Off the Left Eye studio where hopefully people are doing things and doing stuff, as in what do I do with my life, is a huge part of human life. And it's not a part of life that we leave behind when we die, because when we die, we don't stop having life. (laughs) This is what Swedenborg wrote, True Christianity 693. After death, we live on as human beings, just as we had in the physical world before. As we used to in the world, we see, hear, and speak. As we used to in the world, we wear clothes and accessories. As we used to in the world, we feel hunger and thirst, and we eat and drink. Get the kids out of the room for this one. As we used to in the world, we enjoy making love to our spouse. As we used to in the world, we go to sleep and wake up. And the point that he's making is that human life continues. And part of what human life is, is this question, What do I do with my life? What do I do with my afterlife? When you're in the physical world, usually that question is complicated by external circumstances. So you may even have a sense of what you can contribute or what you'd like to be doing, but you don't have the opportunities to get there or the money or even the skill set. So that's blocking you from this connection to, you know, an ultimate use for you. But on the other side, we can be part of the problem if we're chasing things like power and money apart from use that can actually lead us away from what the whole having something to do with your life was meant for. But in our recent show, we talked to you about this whole world of spirits sorting tool that we all get sent into at the beginning of the afterlife where you get to know who you really are, what right and wrong really are, and get cleared up of any uh, tertiary stuff that's trying to pull you off the path. And once we get sorted out like that, then we see this confluence of our desire, our primary urge to be useful 
and God's providence trying to lead us to where we can specifically contribute. And then you get this amazing thing that's actually the core of all joy in heaven. That use, your specific contribution, is what heaven is. Swedenborg actually saw people try to live out this, oh, let's, we don't have to do anything. It's heaven. But that was boring. It's actually doing something that makes you happy. Nobody needs to earn money after death. People work because of the joy of being part of meaningful and amazing group efforts. And like everything spiritual, your heart's desires will lead you to satisfying and fulfilling work that will fill you with a sense of purpose. You'll be led to people also who share your passion and who want to work with you to make things happen. And yes, there will be also lots of forms of recreation that will be rejuvenating and recharge you, but it's all for the sake of what you're doing with your life. So some of the functions that angels perform, or the kind of angelic jobs that we could be looking for, is analogous to stuff that we do here. You can check out our show, A Day in the Life of an Angel, for some of that. But there's a lot of what goes on in heaven that's even above our ability to comprehend here. So there are, that means that there's positions and jobs and functions that we don't even know are out there. And if you're feeling like, I don't know what I can contribute, it could be there's something for you that is perfect, but you just don't know what it is. And you'll get there, but oh, that's exactly what I am. So just for a sense of what the whole heaven experience is like, and to think of how we could possibly slot in there, here's a description that Swedenborg gave. To offer just an idea of it, the countless pleasures and joys in heaven, which come together to create a single experience shared by all, carry with them a certain emotion. Within that common experience or that common emotion are points of harmony among a boundless number of feelings. I was allowed to perceive that there were countless parts, organized in a way that can never be described. Every one of the parts is alive, and every one of them affects us all the way to our core, for the deepest parts are where heavenly joy comes from. I also perceive that joy and happiness seem to come from my heart, gently permeating even the tiniest parts of my nerves. The sensations of this joy at the deepest levels made it seem as though each nerve was composed of nothing but joy and good feelings. The nerves seemed alive with happiness. The joy we feel in physical indulgence compared to these joys is like a coarse, stinging dust compared with the gentlest breath of pure air. We may gather the magnitude of heaven's pleasure simply from the fact that for everyone there it is delightful to share their happiness and bliss with someone else. And since everyone in the heavens is like this, we can see how immense heaven's happiness is. For there is in heaven a sharing by everyone with each individual, and by each individual with everyone. So it's within that way expanded world of possibilities where you can communicate and, and have this intimate sharing of happiness and this totally, way, I was going to say unimaginable, but I think you can imagine them. I just mean beyond what we can do here. It's in that environment that we find these roles that we can play to help facilitate cool stuff like that. That's the kind of jobs, the kind of activities that we can do there in addition to the kinds that seem more familiar to us. Again, there is the more mundane stuff, but there's also this great grand next step of what human life can be. So if I were to sum up what are the jobs and activities like in the spiritual world, it's that we'll be able to do all that our heart desires. And if your heart desires good stuff, you can be there in heaven. So that, that again, it's got elements of what we go through here, but just without all the junk that gets in the way of us doing what really should be done. So even with all these limitations, 
I, I'm talking down the, the level of life that we live here. Our efforts during this life make a huge difference for setting up the platform that allows for that kind of stuff that we saw in that video. We're cultivating here, we're cultivating our intentions. That's really the most important thing that we're doing here is we're cultivating our intentions and those intentions will find their full expression in the afterlife. So let's take a look back down memory lane. What are all the differences between life here and life there? So we saw that surroundings and clothing will reflect your state of mind. Time and space will expand and contract according to our spiritual state. All language will clearly communicate people's true feelings, meaning, and intention. Genuine religion is goodwill and action. We'll be with whomever we truly want to be. We'll be able to do all that our heart desires. It doesn't sound so bad. It sounds like the next step up from where we are here. You recognize the framework, but the life has got that much more love in it. So in our series here, we've looked at, you know, what does it feel like to die? Will your, your body be the same or look the same when you die? And now we've just answered, will life be different when you die? Next, we're going to look in, actually look really deeply into how our very consciousness can change in our show. What happens to your mind when you die? I'll see you there. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. As a nonprofit, we depend on donor support to continue to create high quality programming. Any gift you give joins you to the central network of people in the world who make our work possible. You can deepen the significance of your gift by making it in memory or honor of someone special in your life. This could be done as a one-time gift, recurring monthly, or run as a special fundraiser for your circle of friends and family. Go to otle.causevox.com and follow the prompts to make a gift in whatever way is most meaningful for you. Your support helps the ideas in our content reach and nourish thousands of people every day around the globe. We couldn't do it without you. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through in this way, in the end, everybody wins.